Pat, I'm the pastor of the congregation here. We'd love to have you stick around, and I'd like to meet you after our service. Um, we are coming to the end of our 2020 vision series today, but I want to assure you that this is not the end of our vision and our mission and our action items. Um, and Arthur has helpfully explained these sort of things. Um, when we laid out our strategic plan, there were dozens of action items, and I think the very first one of all of the dozens said, in February 2020, Chad needs to communicate these items to the congregation and to put all of these things within a biblical framework. Therefore, this is the, the first item, and we are ticking it off, but there are many more things that will unfold in the years to come, and we will continue to communicate those things through our Sunday services, through our home groups, and through our ministry groups, so stay tuned. But we want to go to our, our vision statement, and um, I've always been told it's good if we say these things aloud. We haven't done that during this series, so let's just say this together so we get it into our heads. We said we want to be a people of God, growing in Christ, reaching out with the gospel, until Christ returns, until he returns. And so, this is the vision statement, and in the very first of our four weeks, we actually looked at that last phrase, until he returns. That's a future thing, it's a vision thing, but Christ's return um, is what inspires us, and we will see that in, in today's reading. And then we went back to the beginning, and we said we want to be a people of God. We said that has to do with our identity, the way we see ourselves, and the activity that we are meant to be doing. Growing in Christ, um, we talked about how we're called to be disciple-makers. And uh, if we just go to our next slide, we, we looked at the fact that if anyone asked me, what's your church about, how would you describe it in a phrase, I always say we're Disciple-makers, because that is the Great Commission. Jesus, before he left earth, said, go make disciples. And we're going to look at the missional element of that today, but I wanted us to remind each other that um, we have to grow in Christ together. We become students of the Bible. We become students of Christ. We grow into maturity of Christ to the stage then where we can go and make disciples of others. It takes disciples to make disciples. And so there's an internal aspect to, to growing in Christ and becoming disciples. But today we want to see that there's also clearly an external thing. We have work to do, um, reaching out with the gospel until Christ returns. In a sense, there's something beyond this community and beyond these four walls. We need to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to the world um, in our words and in our deeds. So how do we go about doing this? Well, we just have our next slide. I was reminded this week that the first big people adult sermon I can remember delivering, it was my, in my home church back in Colorado. I think I was in my early 20s, and I was supposed to preach on the Great Commission. And I talked about the multiplication of disciples. And I was really excited about this. This had really kind of got into my heart. And so at the very beginning of my sermon, I talked about the power of multiplication. And if you've ever done this sort of thing, the way that numbers increase exponentially. So if I start and I make one disciple in the first year of my life, 
and I raise that person up to the stage where they can go and make a disciple, then in the second year, there are now two disciple makers, and so we go out, and we each reach out to another person, and we make disciples, and now we've got four, and eight, and 16, 32, 64, 128, 256. We round it off to 500 and 1,000. At the end of 10 years, we've now got 1,000 disciples that we've made. And then you just keep following that through because in the next 10 years, we're going to increase another thousandfold. But now we've started with a thousand disciples. A thousand thousands are one million, right? So at the end of 20 years, we now have a million disciples. And now that's going to increase by another thousandfold. So that by the time we get to the end of 30 years, we now have a thousand million, which is one billion disciples. And then really within just over three more years, we have the population of the world, which technically means from the time that I preached that first sermon to today, if I had done that, the whole world would have now become disciples of Christ. Now, I'm going to talk about that a little bit. I'm going to talk about the problems with that simplistic mathematical um, theory. But I also want to let us know that, you know, when... Jesus once talked to his 12 disciples and said, go make disciples of the whole world. And you thought, how in the world do we do that? We have no internet, and we have no planes, and we have no mass communication, mass transport. How in the world are we going to do it? Well, like that, you know, by making disciples who can make disciples. It can be done within a lifetime, technically, by just making one disciple per year and teaching them to do the same. But why hasn't this happened yet? Um, why didn't it happen, you know, for me over the last 30-some years? And more importantly, why didn't it happen in Jesus' day when he went and made his 12 disciples? That seems like that would have been a great time to do it. I mean, there were fewer people and more disciples. And that takes us to our next slide. It's part of our Bible reading today. Well, part of our um, 1 Peter, which we were looking at today. And we looked at this um, during the series we're told that the stone the builders rejected has become our cornerstone. And I found this picture of an old church, you know, and they had actually put Christ literally as one of their cornerstones of their building. And Peter wrote that to this group of Christians, this, you know, church, a little bit like a group of us sitting here today, because he wanted them to understand why weren't things going as well as they had hoped I mean, we were told during this series, you are a, a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You know, you, you are, have been called, you know, into God's glorious kingdom and all of that. So why is it that we feel so alone and persecuted by the world? And why aren't people flocking in through the doors? You know, surely everyone wants to become a royal people and chosen and forgiven and a part of God's kingdom. So why aren't people pouring through the doors? And essentially, Peter takes us right back to Christ. And he said, well, let's think about the cornerstone. Let's think about the author of our faith. Jesus came into the world to proclaim good news. The very beginning of his ministry, repeat, repent and believe the good news. But how was Jesus received? We realize that this sin stuff is very serious. Um, people, when they think, I'm the center of my life and I just want to live my life my way, it's a very serious condition and it's very hard to turn people away from a self-centered life to one where you depend upon Jesus as Lord. 
So even Jesus, you know, he, he comes to his own people and he's there talking to the religious leaders of the day who should have been his best friends. And instead, at the end of his life, um, you know, he's standing there with the religious leaders stirring up the crowd and his own people are ch crying out, crucify him. And he's hanging on a cross alone on a hill. And Peter says, this is the author of your faith. So if you feel discouraged in s sometimes and you wonder why is this strange thing happening, why are, you know, am I not more effective and, and why are people not flooding into our church, it's, it's because they rejected Jesus, they'll reject us. But he doesn't go on to say, so don't worry about it. Just, just huddle in and, and hunker down and Jesus will come back. How do we reach out with the gospel? Well, the people aren't going to come pouring into us. Then we have to think, how do we reach out into this dark and cold and cynical world with the love of God and draw people to him? And that's what this is all about today. So I'm going to talk about three things today. I'm going to talk about our speech and our actions and our meditations of our mind. And the first thing that is mentioned here is our speech. I don't know if you noticed in the reading today from 1 Peter 3, when, when Peter is talking about good and evil, how he focuses on our mouth. I mean, he could have talked about a lot of things. When you think about evil, he could have talked about a lot of areas. But, but listen to the speech language from verse 9 of uh, chapter 3. Do not repay evil for evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing for whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. Why does Peter spend so much time talking about the mouth? Well, when we talk about spreading the gospel, you know, it's, a, it's a verbal thing usually, isn't it? Especially back in the days before printing press and all that, you know, with, with your mouth you declare the good news. So out of our mouths is supposed to come this good news. And as we'll look at later on, it, Peter will go on to talk about people asking us about the hope that is inside of our, our hearts. But how do people see that hope? Well, Part of it has to do with what comes out of our mouth. I want us to think about this a bit more. We'll go to our next slide. Jesus once said, um, out of the abundance of the heart, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. When I was growing up, um, my parents taught us that we weren't supposed to use rude language. Um, you know, we call it cursing, or in the United States, cussing. Um, you know, we were supposed to say cuss words, rude words, that kind of thing. And I didn't, I grew up, my parents didn't speak rudely around the house, and it wasn't a huge temptation. But people would ask me, and this was the interesting thing, people would ask me why I didn't swear. And my dad had given me this answer, and he wasn't afraid of using a little bit of abrasive language to make a point. And he said, well, Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you're speaking crap all the time, what does it have to say about what is inside of your heart? And I thought, well, that makes a lot of sense. And I used to say that back to my friends a lot of times and when they asked me about it. But the thing that intrigued me about it throughout high school, throughout my young adult years, the number of people who said to me, why don't you swear? 
And they were noticing what wasn't there. It, it was a different thing if they said, you know, do you want to go and take drugs with this? And I said, no thanks, I don't take drugs. I was denying something, but no one ever said to me, hey, we're going to go out swearing, would you like to come with this? They just noticed that it wasn't there. And I thought to myself, if they notice what's not coming out of our mouths, then what if we take that a step further and we talk about what does come out of the, the mouth? That Rather than it be curse or cussing or rudeness, that out of it comes blessing. And I want us to think about this in two ways. First of all, internally and then externally. I've never been in a church that I think has a problem with a lot of rude speech. I've never walked into any church that I've been a part of and gone, oh, wow, we really have a lot of rude language in this congregation. I have been in a lot of churches, well, sorry, I shouldn't say, I have been in churches where this has been a big problem and the problem of gossip, the problem of slander, the problem of being judgmental to other brothers and sisters, and it rips church apart. I've never seen a church ruined by rude language. I've seen churches ruined by the tongue, by what comes out of people's mouth. And I want to say this in kind of an exaggerated way, but this is such a big thing that if, if you have the option, and you can only say one rude thing a day, and you hit your you know, finger with a hammer, and you're going to say a rude word, but that's the only one you get, and you also have the opportunity to gossip about a brother or sister or be judgmental or say something rude about a brother and sister, say the rude word. Do not gossip, because it's going to be less offensive to God. Yeah, the, the gossip, the slander, the judgment is more offensive to God's ears, and it will do more damage to the body of Christ. Now, putting it in a more positive way, <laughs> be self-controlled with your mouth, but what we say about each other, we have the opportunity not only to withhold curse, condemnation, because Jesus said, by your love for each other, they will know you are my disciples. But we can encourage each other. We can bless each other. And that gives a completely different flavor to who we are as a church and as a congregation. But then that will overflow outside. The, what we practice in here will overflow to the outside. Parissa and I have been noticing so much lately how the news media and social media is driven by negativity. It is driven by judgment. I mean, if it can make people angry, if it can make people fearful, if it can make people uneasy, then it runs and it leads the news. And we were talking about how, you know, we just went through all the fires and then people started praying, the dams were empty and the fires were on. And in two weeks' time, we went from 40% in our dams to 80% in our dams. The fires were put out, and people started talking on the news media, we've gone from fire to flood, from one disaster to another. And I was hearing this and hearing this, and recently one of our neighbors came up and was going, oh, first it's the fires, now it's the flood. And I said, isn't it good, though, that the fires are out? Isn't it great that the dams are filled? Isn't it great to breathe fresh air? Isn't it great to see green grass and our gardens grow? And she goes, yeah, yeah, I guess that's another way of seeing it. And we can either spread the negativity and the judgment and the condemnation about the world, or we can be people who share blessing and hope and goodness. If we're going to give people an answer about the hope that is within us, do they see hopeful speech? Do they see good speech? Do they see godly speech? 
let's practice good and godly speech. Next slide. I want us also to think about our actions. Earlier in this series, we looked at this verse, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. See your good deeds. Let's go on to the next. Today we're told, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So first of all, you have something about seeing good deeds, and then you have people asking about the hope that is within you. And I guess one way is if people notice that our speech is more positive and it's more God-focused and it's more hopeful, they'll ask about us. But another way is through our activity. If we're doing things that reach out to the world with God's hope and God's love, people are far more likely to say, I noticed that you were involved in this and that and the other. What, what's going on? Why? And then we have a chance to say, because God loved the world. Jesus came into the world. He cared about people. I'm his follower. I'm trying to imitate him. People aren't going to ask about a hopeful life if they don't see a hopeful life. So in our home group this week, we did some things, and we had one person who was helped out with play group. And, and we asked the question, you know, play group, why do we do it? Well, is it because, well, on Tuesdays we have these ministries, and there's one called play group, and so I go and help with that because we all help out with the ministry. But the person involved said we help out with play group because there are Moms and dads and grandparents and carers who are in their homes and they're isolated and we provide a community so that people can come and their kids can interact and they can hear songs and, and, and stories about Jesus and they can meet other parents and it's a service to our local community and we had some people in our home group who help out with youth group and they have a little mantra and I haven't memorized it but before youth group starts they say you know we want to be a safe and inclusive community that shares you know shows love to one another and and shows our love for God and that's why we do youth group and during the week I was at a mission committee and we heard some exciting things about people who are interested in starting up an ESL program because there are, you know, immigrants coming into the country who want to socialize and they need to speak the language and wouldn't it be good if our church could help these people and somebody else talking about doing a parenting seminar because people may not be wanting to come and hear, you know, a series on Deuteronomy later this year, but they are parents and they don't, you know, they want help parenting their kids and we can provide parenting seminars. And every time we do these things and get involved in ministries, the, even those outside of this church, we demonstrate God's love to people and that we want to help you if you're a young parent or an older parent, or if you're someone who's single or alone or whatever, and we have these ministries. So one of the things that we've said in our strategic plan is that, first of all, we want to reevaluate all our ministries and get it into our heads. Why do we have it? And to make sure that that purpose is very clear, that we're reaching out to the world with the love of God. And then just move on to the next slide. And the final bit has to do with the meditations of our mind. We're told, in your hearts, revere Christ as your Lord. And the reason I think that this was so significant is, yeah, of course, we're Christians. We revere Christ as Lord. But in the context, he talks about 
For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, and that he might bring us to God, that he was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive by the Spirit. In other words, when we feel persecuted or we feel alone or we feel like something strange is happening and why is it that as a Christian it's so tough, you remember Christ also suffered for sins. Take up your cross and follow me. This is the path that we have chosen, but it's a path with a glorious future, but it's going to be difficult along the way. So always revere Christ as Lord. Remember the Jesus, the Christ, the Lord that we are following. Now, this has been a bit of a tricky verse, and in the last few minutes, I want to try to go through this quite quickly because um, it's kind of a verse that's a little bit strange, and it's, it's the underpinning of this whole passage And I think it's important that we understand it. So if we can just look at this part of it again. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And then our translation today, which is a pretty good one, says, After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience to God. Now, when those verses were being read, I don't know how many people's eyes glazed over. You went, what's going on here? And it's been... Uh, a fairly misunderstood passage and a misinterpreted one. And I don't want to sit here and do this as some sort of biblical, trivial pursuit exercise, but I think because this is the, the foundation of this passage and it's the conclusion, I want to make sure that we understand it well. So if we just go to our next slide. First of all, we need to understand the background to the question, the, the, the background to the statement. And it has to do with Noah, right? And I don't know if you thought about why is Noah suddenly being used as an example here. And the reason is, Noah is an example of the first worldwide act of salvation and the first worldwide act of judgment. And this idea about Noah runs all the way through. And I want us to think about this a little bit. Imagine that you are back in Noah's day and you could be a fly on the wall and watch this. Here is this guy who's spending most of what would be our adult lifetime, and he's building this giant ship on dry land. And we're told that Noah wasn't just a shipbuilder, he was also a preacher of righteousness. We'll see this a little bit later. So while Noah is building this giant ship, and people are coming going, what in the world are you doing, Noah? And why are you bringing all these animals in? And we have no body of water that will even take that. And he says, well, God is going to judge the world. He's going to send a flood. Well, why don't you just go and go to higher ground like what everyone, everyone does during a flood? No, you don't understand. Everyone is going to be wiped out. This is a worldwide judgment. But God has provided a way of salvation because a long time ago, God made a promise to Adam and Eve that he was eventually going to bless the world through one of their own children. And God isn't finished with us yet, so he's provided salvation. All you need to do is to believe God and turn away from your sin. The doors to the ark is open. It's like his giant church. Come on on here and join us, and there is salvation if you listen to my gospel message. 
God is angry with the world. He's going to judge it for its sin, but he has provided a way of salvation because his ultimate plan is to bless the world. Does that sound familiar? But how did people respond? Oh, what? God's going to judge me? Oh, you are so judgmental. No, I can't believe that you're going to say stuff like that. Hey, everyone, Noah says that God's going to judge us all. You know, he says if we come into his little church here, his little ark here, you know, that God is going to look after and save. How ridiculous. And they continued to mock him. And sadly, in Noah's day, as a gospel preacher, his family believed, seven members of his family and him, eight people out of the whole world. That was the success of his mission. Entered into the ark until the day God shut the door, brought about salvation for those who had repented and turned to him, brought about judgment on the world. And that is why that is there. It is the picture of the first judgment. It's two judgments in view. They're like sandwich, you know, two pieces of bread in the sandwich. And first, Peter's going to talk about the Noah salvation and judgment, and then he's going to talk about the final. And Jesus did the same. He talked about this in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. It comes up in Hebrews and other places. Jesus said, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Peter uses Noah and that act of judgment and salvation because it points to what is ahead. And he's saying to the church of Peter's day, and he says to the church of our day, if you're out there proclaiming the gospel and people seem reluctant, remember it was, will be in this day just as it was in Noah's day. And if we go on to the next slide, Peter, not in 1 Peter, which we read today, but in 2 Peter, also points out that there's actually a link not just because to the judgment of the humans, but he talks, he alludes to a spiritual judgment against Satan and the evil spirits. In 2 Peter it says, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, and if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the final day of judgment. And so there's a little weird, couple weird things if you're ever reading the story of Noah that it doesn't just talk about the violence of the people of the day, but it talks about angels or evil spirits breaking their boundaries and intermixing with the people of the earth and causing all kinds of violence and corruption and this sort of thing. And Peter picks on that. So when he talks about judging of the spirits, he's talking about the human spirits, but he's also talking about the spiritual realm as well. And this is important. So if we just go to our next slide. So then we have these two translation possibilities. And if you are reading on your phone or in your Bible, you may have noticed that we're given the reading that you heard, but there's a little footnote that gives us another possibility. And I think that both are intended. And if we understand this, we'll understand what this, this verse is really all about. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Christ was put to death in the body. 
Christ was made alive by the Spirit. So that verse talks about Jesus, and it talks about the Holy Spirit. And then there's these three little Greek leaking words, which basically means in which also he. And so the question is, in which also, are we talking about in which Christ went and preached to the people of Noah's day, or in which the Spirit preached to the people of Noah's day? And then you get these two slightly different interpretations, and I think we're meant to understand both. So let's look at our two options. Option one, it says that Christ's death and resurrection and ascension was a victory speech to the world and to Satan's realm. And now he's God's savior and judge and the spiritual uh, of the spiritual and the earthly realms. And so this is what you read in the Bible today. After being made alive, Christ also went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And then it goes on to say, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven. He is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. In other words, Christ's death and resurrection and ascension was a great victory speech to the spiritual realm. And while we don't see that today, spiritual demons are still at work today and there's people still in disobedience, but you go back to the first judgment and Christ shows that he is victorious, that he, in a sense he holds the key to death and hell. Or in Paul's uh, statement in Philippians 2 where he says he you know, descended to the earthly regions and he was put to death on a cross, but now every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension is a victory speech that he now is the judge and the savior of the whole world. But then we go on to option two. The spirit who raised Christ from the dead also preached judgment and salvation through Noah. So Christ was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit in which he also made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. If you go to the next slide, in 1 Peter 1, if we go back a little bit, it says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the idea here is that Noah was this preacher of righteousness, and like all of the other prophets, the Spirit of Christ was speaking through him. He was speaking about the the salvation and judgment that was to come. So when Noah was preaching righteousness and saying, turn from your sin and be saved and God wants to have mercy on you, it was Christ's own spirit who was speaking to him. And I think that if you take those two messages together, they become this great, these two bookends. The same spirit that speak, uh, spoke through Noah and spoke judgment and salvation, is the same spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead and placed him above all powers and authority, and he's the same spirit that lives in you today. If we just go to our next slide, which is a little bit beyond our reading, but I think it forms the perfect conclusion of what this is saying. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trials that you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice. 
you are participating in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is, appear, uh, is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, then you are blessed, for the spirit of, of the glory of God rests on you. Yeah, you're, you're suffering now, you're facing rejection now, but Jesus did as well. And Noah faced this back in his day. But the spirit who raised Christ from the dead has now been poured out on your hearts. He is a, it's a promised seal of what is to come. Keep speaking words of hope to each other and to the people out there. Keep living good and godly lives and ministering on Christ's behalf and reaching out with the love of God. And always revere Christ as your Lord, remembering his suffering and also remembering your future glory.